you know, we've got the live stream show that takes up some time. And then we've been working on the, you know, we have these or a line, you know, Bandcamp official bootleg releases that we've been doing, which, you know, we eventually will have the entire history of Perubu, you know, available and, con- you know, chosen concerts from from the decades. And, um, yeah, uh, I don't, you know, and I've been doing a lot of a lot of paperwork, which is not not fun, but um not fun, but, not but necessary. Well, yeah, but I, I, you know, I haven't done much creative work in the last couple months. But um, next week, I'm taking off. I'm gonna put a notice up on my email saying I'm I'm I'm, I'm away for a week. You know, unless you're gonna give me a million dollars, you know, um, leave me alone, sort of thing, and. Um, so that'll be fun. It, it, you know, I, you know, when I'm doing creative work, I really have to have very, you know, blank days where, you know, maybe most of the day I'll just be sitting watching TV or just sitting here and staring at something, you know, and it doesn't look like I'm doing anything, but, you know, I'm getting ready to do something. So, you know, I basically it's, get ready to do something. And when I'm ready to do something, I, I do it all in about 20 minutes and you know, then I'm, I'm done for a song or for a half an album or something, you know, I, but it might take me four days of staring at the wall to get there, but you know, it's part of the process. It's what I've always done. I heard you on a recent interview discuss the process and it sounds like part of it is really just uh, taking in as much media as you can. I mean, you listen to a lot of Top 40 radio. No, I don't listen to a lot of Top 40 radio. Number one, it goes in spurts. I tend not to listen to Top 40. I I like, you're not English, are you? I'm not. Okay, I can't tell anymore. I'm uh, based in New York. Yeah, all right. Well, I, I listen to Radio 1, which um, has which is maybe the best commercial radio station in England because at night and in the early mornings, you know, overnight, basically, they they play a lot. I don't know what they call this modern music, but they play this modern music, which is for modern pop music, pretty cutting edge. You know, it's I don't know what they call this stuff anymore. I don't. Pay, I've never paid attention to what somebody calls something, but it's it's pretty adventure. You know, it's it's cutting edge for for pop electronic uh, um, stuff. You know, and once in a while, you know, at a certain point, you know, I'll listen to a, maybe a week or so of pop radio just to sort of see what's going on, but not for any constructive reason, but just as it's what I do, you know. Um, I mean, I like radio. I mean, I like to listen to radio, but I tend to not listen to music. I mean, I, I, mean, I listen to Radio 3 with BBC 3, which is the classic station. And there's a couple, there's a couple rock stations that, that, are, that are pretty good. I'll listen to those. Most rock music, though, is devoted to middle-aged white women and teenagers. And so I've become, you know, as I usually do every couple of years, totally disillusioned with it, you know. And, um, but, you know, after 
after 40, 50, 60 years of being disillusioned, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. Maybe I got the wrong impression, but, uh, you know, having heard you describe it before, it almost sounds like, if not a chore, then kind of a, a homework assignment that you give yourself from the standpoint of like, yeah. it's not entirely enjoyable. Well, no, I you know, I just don't, I don't, I listen to things differently than, than maybe a lot of people. When I'm here just on my own and I'm doing something, I, I'll just put one album on that I like, you know, and I'll play it over and over and over. I mean, it's on endless loop, you know, so all day long, it might be Funhouse by the Stooges, or it might be, or it might be a Peter Hamill record, or a Van de Graaff, or, you know, I mean, it could, it could be almost anything. It's just, you know, I put something on, and I am enjoying it. Well, I just play it again. Kirstie's never understood how I watch TV. I don't care what I'm, I, I come from a very 60s American view of watching TV, which is you just watch it, you know, don't try to, I'm not trying to understand it, what's going on or, or, or get quote unquote anything from it. I'm just watching it. You know, I, I you know, I, there is a very famous, incident, not famous, but there's a well-traveled incident with my, my ex-wife where, where we were, we were watching Blade Runner you know, and she says to me, you know, something, something, something that Harrison Ford was a replicant. And I said, what? How? A replicant? And she said, well, didn't you notice that scene with the unicorn? And I don't know how well you know the movie. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the dream with the unicorn and then the carved, the carved unicorn. Yeah, and, all, and various things like that. And I see, she said, well, what did you think that was? And I just thought. Well, it's just something that happened in the movie, you know. I, I, you know, it didn't seem to me that it was supposed to mean something. You know, it's not that I'm stupid. It's just when I'm watching TV or a movie or something, I just sit there and watch it. You know, it's like, oh, look at the colors. You know, stuff like that. You know, I think there's a value in being able to turn your brain off for a bit, or at least turn off turn off that sort of hyper analytical side. Well, uh, I'm not. I'm, you know, I I suppose I'm analytical. Um, You're opinionated for certain. Yeah, well, I suppose I'm analytical. I, you know, when it comes to, uh, I'm writing, if I'm writing a new song, you know, and I've got a piece of music I'm working to, I'll sit there and endlessly, you know, study the sound and study the music and I'll just study it. And I'm not sitting there thinking anything. I just study it until... It comes becomes clear to me what it's about. Um, yeah, I I'm, I tend to be analytical. I don't now. The, the, the next part of that explanation is that there is no such thing as human thought. That it's a total myth. So I don't think about anything. I don't. There is no such thing as thought. What happens is I study something and words come up in your brain and that's what you would call a thought but it's not a thought you didn't generate it it was it was well it's complicated but it was it was it was produced by a, a hieroglyph of uh, by hieroglyphs of of uh, sensation you know and i've always i've always sort of um, been that way i'm afraid i don't know I don't know why, but that's just the way I am. I think the human brain is wired to make connections. Yeah. There is 
this sort of, you know, lizard brain thing that we have wired into us where we see faces and things, where there aren't faces and things. Yeah, I, you know, there's, there's things like morphic resonance going on. There's, there's all sorts of stuff going on that we have no grip and no concept of, you know, and, you know, and I, you know, I've, I've always, I've always, very early in my life, I discovered a great, a great truth, which is, Basically, later summed up by Fortean science. Do you know what Fortean science is? I don't. That's okay. Most people don't. I don't um, want to pretend like I do. No, don't do that. There's no, there's no shame in not knowing Fortean science. But Fortean science basically says, that, let me see if I can phrase this right. Basically, basically, Fortean science says there really isn't any point to understand to studying something that you don't understand. What you need to study is the things that don't make any sense. You know, in other words, the true frontiers of knowledge are in explaining why fish fall from the sky. It rains fish in the middle of Australia. Why living frogs will jump out of pieces of coal in a mine. You know, and those are extreme examples of that's the stuff that should be studied, you know, um, as opposed to, well, uh, any other form of science. You know, it's not to denigrate science, but as to why the rain falls, yeah, it's good to know that stuff, but it's much better to know why fish fall from the sky. I don't quite understand the distinction between what you don't know and, and what doesn't make sense. You know, on the face of it, those two things seem very similar. Well, number one, it's very easily summed up in a phrase that I, I used many years ago and I've endlessly repeated, which is that a map only tells you what you already must know. If you want to get from here to the rock club in Spithole City, you don't need a map. You know where it is. A map's only going to help you organize your thoughts, you know. So that is, in the end, part of part of the explanation. Now, this may sound weird and extravagant and, and arty-farty, but, you know, tough, tough luck. One of the things that, that I gathered, obviously following your music, but, but also even more so listening to interviews that you've done, is I think that you're somebody who tends to think to some degree in abstractions. And I say this specifically, I, I heard you discussing in terms of playing with musicians about how they tend to focus in parts and you tend to focus on uh, the music, which, which to me, the distinction there seems to be one of a specific piece of music you can write out and an abstraction or, or a feeling or a theme or a tone. Well, it's 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 the old the old forest for the trees sort of thing. Everything you know, I I base everything on on on, on rules. You know, there's rules. I mean, yeah, you know, I've I've said this from the beginning, and and uh, by beginning I mean seventy five or whatever it was. I've said over and over that who is in a it's irrelevant who is in a band. You know, now this fly, this is totally unacceptable in the rock myth, you know, rock world, you know, where it's all based on personality cult and on, you know, the extravagance of the, you know, the, the, the lead guitar, you know, whatever, Iggy Pop or Keith Richard or on and on and on. And, and my point has always been, it's irrelevant. Iggy Pop's irrelevant. You know, Keith Richard is irrelevant. Little Richard is irrelevant. You know, maybe Elvis wasn't irrelevant. I'm, I'm not going to go that far because you don't touch the holy and the mighty. It's the idea of a band that 
that governs what the band is. And so you have a set of ideas and people come along and they fit. They don't necessarily fit the idea, but somebody comes along and you think, oh, we add this person to this set of ideas and this will be better or this will be different or, or you know, this will move somewhere. This will, this will evolve in a, in a direction that, uh, you know, it would be interesting to go down, you know. I don't sit there and go, it's got to evolve into this. I sit there and go, who can we add that will make it evolve into something a step for, further along, you know. You know, and the rules aren't particularly hard to understand. You know, one of the big rules is the best guitar parts, the one that requires you to move your fingers the least. You know, uh, we don't pay for equipment, you know. Uh, all, you know, there's a hundred things, you know, all little nitpicky sort of things like, you know, being, don't, you know, about not being late, you know, <laughs> or, or this thing and that thing. And if somebody is, will say, well, how can this, how can this govern a band? This rule that I can't even think of any of the rules now. Kiersey should be here. She'd remember them for me. You know that. You know that's just the mystery of putting putting something together that's going to last decade after decade. You know, I must have done something right because all of Perubu's history and the hundreds of little changes it's had, it's all still recognizable as Perubu. You know, it has drifted off somewhere. I'm not doing Frank Sinatra covers, you know, I'm not, there's not an album of, you know, that sort of stuff coming out. But that was that's all been in place from the beginning, but people don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about Peter Lochner and, and cocaine and, you know, that sort of stuff, you know. I mean, I'm not blaming, I'm not, Peter is a good friend of mine, you know, I, I just resent the way his life has been taken from him and, and made into this whatever it's been made into. No, I, I, I was talking to somebody not about him specifically, but a, a similar idea recently just about the mythos of dying young, I think is, is, is a big part of it. If you stick around long enough to at least to a certain degree, and if you do interviews and talk to people, you're around to clarify things and, and misconceptions. Well, also, and you're not, you know, the first thing to do is turn Peter into a victim, you know, and uh, and for whatever Peter's faults were, he was not a victim. You know, when he was alive, he was not a victim. You know, so well, I mean, I just resent that his life's been taken from him. Um, he took his own life basically by abusing himself, but but that was the end of it. You know, since then his life's been taken and abused. He far worse. That he ever abused himself, but that's another. I, that's, I don't want to go on too much about it. Are you able to articulate what that, at least the initial idea of Para Ubu was, and what that theme is that's lasted through the decades? I, I mean, I can articulate it, but um, you got to remember that I'm articulating it 50 years later. So my so my ability to to articulate it over the years has changed, you know, I mean, it's just that uh, I, I come along one decade and I go, oh, yeah, it was, you know. But basically, Perubu was meant to finish the work that uh, that Rocket from the Tomb started. Now, nobody else in Perubu likes, wants to hear about that because they weren't in Rocket from the Tombs, you know, they, they have their other little 
they have their other places they come from. But that's what that's what the first ambition, that's what the initial impetus was, was to finish that off. Now, by finishing that off, I mean evolving it and making it into something that was the next step. Because Rocket from the Tombs achieved a certain first step, which was just this totally brutal, overdriven, absolutely out of control rock and roll music, you know, violent and, 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 and brutal. I mean, you have no concept. I mean, even from the tapes, you have no concept of what an, an assault Rocket from the Tombs was. You know, one of our last shows was opening for television in, in, in Cleveland. And later... Richard Lloyd was in Rocket from Tunes, as I'm sure you know. And he was telling me the story about how he and Tom Verlaine were taking a walk out after after watching our soundtrack. And they looked at each other and they said, that's a scary band. <laughs> the idea of Perubu for me in the beginning, the summer of 1975, was that I was going to, I had this ambition to move Rocket to whatever the next step was going to be. In other words, to take this brutality and this this assault and apply it to uh, apply the technology and the techniques and the understanding to starting to tell more complicated stories. And so in the end, that's what my notion of Paribu is going to be that we're going to start here. Well, we start with the ability to be Rocket from the Tombs. If we want to be Rocket from the Tombs for the next 50 years, we could have done that. That's not what I wanted to do, nor anybody else. So we would, we would start there and move, you know, and start to tell stories that, that and these stories would evolve over time, that these stories, our ability to tell stories with this assault mechanism would become, would develop in some way, would evolve and would... So somewhere along the line, I began to say, well, the idea of Perubu was to have a band that Herman Melville, Raymond Chandler, and uh, I don't know who you want to say, uh, William Faulkner would have wanted to would have wanted to be members of if they were kids growing up in the early 70s. They would want to be, in, instead of being, because in the early 70s, you know, if you ever read the Charlotte P- Pressler piece, those were different times. You know, she talks about how there was this, about the, about the Cleveland Underground, the people that were making up the Cleveland Underground. And she talks about how, you know, in, 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 in 10 years earlier, these this group of young men and women moving into young adulthood would have gone into literature or painting or something out. But in the early seventies, these same there was no other choice for these same people but to go into rock music, you know. And so, if William Faulkner, or, yeah, if all of these you know if these people had been alive in the early seventies. Parable would have been the band they wanted to be in. Tom Verlaine was doing the same thing with television. You know, the the difference, to, you know, the, the race between television and us to get out the first single, self-produced single, was a close-run thing. And they won because something I don't want to talk about. But, but we were both headed to that direction, you know. And in that period of time, you know, there was a residence, there was... Um, there was television, you know, and, and and talking heads hadn't come along yet, but they were bubbling under somewhere. 
there was I know there was a band in Indiana who I cannot remember their name who were deeply impressive and other people around the country, you know, who all of whom basically all of whom disappeared and were wiped out by punk or whatever you want to call it. Not to put too fine a point on it, but but, it, but essentially what it was then, and, and I guess to some degree has continued to be, is a vessel or a vehicle for the stories that you want to tell, for, for what you want to do as a writer. Yeah, well, I, you know, one of the first, the first thing I said when Peter Arkner said he wanted to be in the band, I said, uh, all right, I'm the only songwriter. I mean, in other words, only lyricist. I'm the only singer. We're not doing your songs. We're doing new songs, you know, and I'm going to write the words, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, in the end, with rare exceptions along the way, um, I, I, I do the work. I do the writing. And because I'm doing the songwriting, I mean, the lyric writing, we only do songs that I want to do, you know, which cause in certain times has caused trouble. I mean, Tom basically quit the first time because of that, because he would write these pieces of music. And there's one particularly infamous within the secret Perubu history that, you know, I, I um, basically devastated, just tore it apart. I mean, in the end, I only used two overdubs and the whole song was reduced to two overdubs. The rest of it was all, I didn't, didn't have any, I discarded it basically. Um, and so that caused some resentment and at various times it causes resentment that nothing gets done unless I agree to do it. Tough. Would you say that you're, you're a difficult person to be in a band with? No, I'm a very easy person to be with a band. Talk to, talk to, you know, number one, I think my last count, there have been 21 members of Perubu over the years. Of those 21, any 20 of them would play with me again in a moment. Tom's been in the band three times. You know, Tony Tony Mamoni's been in the band at least twice and maybe three times. I don't know. Talk to Dids or Keith about me or, you know, I'm uncompromising. You know, if I don't believe that you're giving the best that you've got, then you're going to get shit from me. Your life is going to, your life's going to be hell because I know what you can give me. I know what you can give the not give me, give the band. I know what you're capable of, you know. And, and, and if you're and if you happen to do something substandard, you know, I'm going to tell you. You know, I'm not going to say all that shit, but I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to get you to do something, you know. So. Um, no, but in per, in Perubu, in the vast period, you know, and by Perubu, I mean all of my solo bands. You know, basically after after 1982, Song of the Bailing Man, Perubu continued. It was called David Thomas and the Pedestrians. It was called David Thomas and the Wooden Birds. It was David, whatever it was. All of those bands were based on Perubu principles and were assembled and they worked like Perubu. Now, Richard Thompson is not some slob that you can, you know, you can order around. Richard Thompson loved working with me. You know, people who work with me know they're never going to get any any money to speak of. I mean, you get paid, but you know, it's not going to it's not going to keep you in you know and whatever. No, there's the, there's the thrill of working in Perubu doing something that's going to amount to something. Now, 
it's not going to amount to girls or a house in Malibu or, you know, any of that other stuff. But it amounts to something that you can take pride in. I, I had a uh, Alan on the show a few years back. And, you know, one of the things that he told me that I found both fascinating and amusing was that his synthesizer work fairly early on into the, the history of synthesizers. He was just experimenting with so much stuff that he was essentially creating sounds that were essentially impossible for him to replicate right. on the stage. I I know that Per Ubu, in a sense, was, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but was kind of created to be a studio band from the standpoint of you were creating these these products versus the live experience of Rocket. Right. If you listen to any, you know, if you ever, ever, ever have access to unedited tapes of those early shows, there's long gaps between the songs. There's just endless gaps. Um, with Alan basically repatching his machine. Eventually, he got to sort of a universal patch that he was satisfied that he could just basically have one set up that was quickly changeable. No, that's how I started. You know, that's that's where these stories began to come from, you know, because I'm, I'm standing there on stage like a limit, you know, minute after minute. I mean, a minute of nothing on a stage is a long time. Yeah, especially when you're the singer. Yeah, and and we're in a rock, grubby rock club, you know. I mean, so, you know, so I started just having to do, just doing something, just yakking or telling some story or just making some sound or something just because, you know, what the hell am I supposed to do? You know, I'm not going to stand there. You know, I I have to keep entertaining the people, you know, and we're, you know, it's part of the, part of the gig is that we're, we're entertainment. You know, I mean, I don't see this. Now, I'll talk about the art of Perubu, but I don't see this as some sort of art project. You know, people pay us good money that they've worked hard for, you know, and and we owe them a show. Now, we don't owe them what they want to hear, see or hear. We owe them the best that we can possibly deliver what we want to deliver. But we owe. We owe them that, you know, so... There's a difference between that and pleasing the audience. We don't owe them pleasure. You know, we don't owe them a good time. What we owe them is perubu, the best that it can be done. Is that complicated by the fact that you're sitting down on stage? No, I, I can sit on stage better than a lot of people can stand on stage. You know, um, no, I, you know obviously the days of my, of the, any kind of, ex- I mean, I've done, so, you know, well over a thousand shows in my life. It's probably more up like 1,300 because I've lost a lot of them. But, um, uh, you know, but those days are gone. I mean, we have a show coming up in February, which is going to be an actual show in front of actual people. I'll do my the best that I can to walk on stage. and But, uh, you know, from then on, I've, I've got to sit. You know, I, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't stand that long. Now, you know, I know this is not rock and roll and all that other stuff, but tough. You know, as long as I, as long as I, one of the, one of the things when I first started sitting before I had to sit, but I thought, oh, let me, let's go, I'll just go on and sit, was that my singing got proportionately better, you know, that I, you know, I was, I would just, I was just, the only thing I had to do was sing. I mean, I'd wave my arms a bit, you know, that sort of thing. But um, 
I, I, I could concentrate totally on singing because even when I didn't have problems with my legs, you know, I was always worried about falling into the drums or stumbling over something or, you know, because I would be moving around a lot. And so a, a, a large part of my brain was used up with just staying on my feet, you know. Well, now I don't have to think about anything but singing and the song and what everybody is doing and how it's all fitting together. So, you know, from a, from a strictly vocalization point of view, it's it's a it's it's a brilliant move. I've heard you say something along the lines of you don't or didn't like your voice or or how you sang. Has that has that changed over the years? No, I don't like my voice and. And I don't like, I hate, you know, I don't, don't, I don't just dislike singing. I hate it. I despise it. I resent it. I don't see why I have to go out and sing, you know, but if you want. I mean, you you did this to yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I became the singer, you know, I was going to be the guitar player, but, you know, I bought a guitar and started working on it, but it, you know, it hurt my fingers and there's too much nonsense I had to deal with. So I, I put it aside and I and I went to everybody. And I said, I'm the singer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that worked. Well, no, what are they going to say? No. And so, you know, and I wasn't very good at it for a while, but um, or at least as good as I could be. And I worked on it, and, you know, and I'm a good singer. I'm, you know, I don't get the credit for singing, you know, much like Bob Dylan didn't get the credit for being a singer. You know, everybody's going on how Bob Dylan doesn't sing. Bob Dylan's a brilliant singer. You know, Leonard Cohen is a brilliant singer. You know, you know let's not forget that Billie Holiday had a complete vocal range of eight notes she was only capable of singing one octave you know and she's considered and rightfully so one of the great singers of all time you know singing has nothing to do with all that operatic nonsense of hitting the something rather over the something rather you know what i mean sure it's useful if you can i mean ella obviously had a a multi-octave range and and knew how to use it yeah well there's nothing wrong with having a multi-octave range there's nothing wrong with having a one octave range. It's not. It's not what range you have. Hundreds of people are better singers than me that aren't even professional singers. You know, I, you know, but they're not professional singers. They don't. You know, they're listening. I mean, my hearing is really not very good. It's never been good. But I can hear things in music that other people can't hear. You know, there's this, again, in the mythology, the stories of Perugu, there's this famous thing when my ex-wife and I were laying in bed, and she said to me, I wish that dog would stop barking. And I'm laying there thinking, what dog? You know, and I'm I'm starting to listen really hard. You know, I mean, just listen really hard. And I can't hear any dog. You know, she's going on and on about it. But... On the other hand, she, you know, I would say I would bring these two two tracks to her. You know, one had the bass really like outrageous, and one had the bass just sort of something rather. And I said, "Which do you do like the the loud bass or the whatever bass?" And she said, "I can't tell. I can't. There's no. They're both the same. You know. So my hearing has always been very very specific and very trained to sound." You know, and the, another another story from the past is 
you know, when I, when I realized, and it must have been 90, 94, somewhere in there, I realized that I was tone deaf, you know, because how would I know if I was tone deaf or not? You know, you don't have any idea what, what anybody else hears. It's like colorblindness. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, so how do I know what you're hearing? I only know what I hear, you know. So I realized from very, some various things that, that I really can't tell the difference between one note and another note, how, you know, unless that note is sounding, unless the notes are sounding in a, in a basically an acoustical environment. Now, in the studio or something, I could tell that, you know, I could tell that one note was technically higher than the other note, except when I listen to the lower note. And this is, you know, someday you ought to, you know, if you listen to a low note, it has all the frequencies of the high note in it. It's just they're they're subtle, you know. Um, so I would always hear in a low note all the frequencies are what are in it. May, you know, may, in a low note, there's going to be something at 15,000 hertz or whatever kilohertz or whatever, you know, above human hearing, but it's in there, you know, so I would listen to it on its own, and it's in a pure acoustical environment, I would listen to that low note, and I would hear the entire range of that, of frequencies. Now, if you put that low note in a nightclub, or in a recording environment, or in this room, or whatever, then it's all clear, very clear to me, I hear the entirety of the sound. It's like when when music is on and somebody is talking to me, I don't hear them. You know, I'm listening to the music. Doesn't matter what it is. If you if you want to dial me out of a conversation really quickly, put some record on, and I won't listen to you anymore. It's the same with women's voices. You know, I've always you know, there's very few women singers I like. It's because women voices have those have a set of frequencies in them. Just because that's the way they are. They have a set of frequencies that I find intolerable. Now, those same frequencies are intolerable in my own voice, which is why over the years I've had to learn where those frequencies are and dial them out. You know, so, you know, and I've finally gotten to basically where I know where to dial them out. It has nothing to do with them being women or anything, because I hate the same sound in my voice. You know, it's just... It's just that's the way my hearing is. It's not like your hearing or anybody else's hearing. What's 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 the difference? Why shouldn't you know? Why shouldn't it be different? Is it physiological, you know, or is it just the way that you sort of trained your brain to listen to music? Oh, I'm, I'm sure there's some physiological thing. I don't know. What's the point? Why should I even bother wasting time to answer the question? That's the this you know it's you know i don't i don't need to fix myself i'm fine the way i am i don't i don't feel any lack or need no it's not about fixing yourself i I just think it's interesting the way different people perceive things differently it's 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 really easily solvable i i get the eq meter and i dial out you know i dip out that frequencies and then i go oh that's good you know you're kind of doing it for yourself because probably a majority of people or maybe everyone who listens to it won't react to the music in the same way but no nobody reckon nobody nobody thinks it you know it makes any difference you know everybody is saying 
you know, it's like that. The other infamous period was moment in my life was when I was doing the vocals to a song called Semaphore, which was on the variations on a theme album, I think. Well, anyway, I went into the studio. All the words were written. The song was done. I just had to sing it. So I went in to sum it, and I started at 11 o'clock in the morning laying down vocals. I didn't finish with, and I, I didn't finish until two o'clock in the morning. There was no breaks in the whole thing. I would just do one take, and I'd say no, erase it. You know, and I do another one, and I'd say no, erase it. You know, and Paul, bless him, was very patient. You know, though I think by the end, by two o'clock in the morning, he was pretty fried. You know, and Alan Ravenstein was there for a lot of it, and he'd say, you know, he kept on saying. It's all fine. It sounds that that take sounds great. You know what's wrong with it? Let's you know? go home, David. Well, went home. You know, but um, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't right. So I kept doing it until I got it right. And from that point onwards, I've never spent more than three takes on a vocal. I'll do one take just to get the ranges worked out and just the, the sound of the mic right and on that. Then I'll do a second take, which is generally the take I, I go with. And then I go a third take, which is I know where the weak points are in the second take. So I go in and concentrate on picking up the weak points in the third take. You know, and ever since, not literally ever since, but basically since that experience, it's three takes and out. What was the process of going back and remastering some of these albums like, of sort of completely revisiting it and in a lot of ways completely re-EQing it? Yeah, I remixed them, you know, from, I, I took them all, I took everything down to zero again. And, um, you know, it started off with, I can't remember which one, but it started off with, because all through, you know, it's very much like Orson Welles. Orson Welles never had any, after Citizen Kane, never had any money, never had any, any, any wherewithal to finish a movie in a proper way. It was always scrambling to get, you know, shooting a scene in Spain, scrambling to get some money, continuing the scene in Tunisia or wherever. The Don Quixote was the big one of his. That yeah, was just, well, I mean, he's had a lot of big ones, you know, that were like Magnuson that. Ambersons and yeah. Well, all of them, you know, all of them. You know, Ambersons was a little bit closer to, to he had the end taken away from him. But everything else after the Ambersons was total desperation, you know. And so I've never had the money to finish, to do things right, you know, to do things with any amount of time left. It's like I can afford a week. Okay, we're going to go in and record. You know, I will mix it and put it out, you know. Okay, well, 40 years later, I have the technology. I have the time. And I thought, okay, you know, for, for endless posterity's sake, I'm going to go in, I'm going to remix this, you know, and get it the way it quote unquote should have been, you know, so it, it started off and I, I don't remember which album that was, but it started off there. And I thought, yeah, I, I like what's happened here, you know, and I, I, and I did a few more. Some of them I've decided there's no, I have no reason to remix them. You know, they're, they're fine. They're, you know, it all depends on, what the process was and how stressed the whole thing was, you know, at the time, you know, of, of putting it together. And 
whether I had, you know, because one of the one of the main things that I need is just time, you know, like to to study what's happened and to to fully comprehend it and know what's supposed to happen next. But if you have a week to do it, you know, you go with what you got. When you're producing an album, there isn't the opportunity to. It's kind of a cliche phrase, but to listen to things with fresh ears because you're so immersed in it. Well, not no. Well, the, the point though is there's not. If you're doing it on a shoestring, there is no time to get, you know, you can you can freshen your ears. All, all I do to freshen my ears is not listen to anything for a couple weeks, for a month. You know, I put it away and, you know, I listen to it a month later. But, you know, when you got a shoestring budget, there's no time for that. You don't enjoy the process of singing. Is there an aspect of the process of music making or music performing that you, that you like in particular that you still enjoy above others? No, no, <laughs> it's just a thing you're, you're stuck doing now. Well, it's just, I don't enjoy the only time I enjoy something quote unquote, enjoy it is, is when, is when it's over, when I'm back in the hotel and I go, well, I dodged a bullet there. And the the most complimentary thing I think is like, I dodged a bullet. You know, it, it came out okay. It was all right. You know, but I don't. I you know, all I ever do is see what's wrong with something. I don't. You know, and even when I'm saying I dodged a bullet, you know, it's I dodged a bullet. You know, that's not. That doesn't mean it was by my standards good or whatever or exceptional. It just means. I didn't screw up. I didn't run into the furniture. You know, I remembered my lines. I, I, you know, most of, mostly it, it was sung well. You know, there's always, there's always something that's wrong. You know, that's, that's just, that's who I am. And everybody wants me, do I, did I enjoy it? No, I, you know, usually, I, usually I just lie because people don't want to hear, you know, how you do, you know, they want, you know, they want all this crap, you know, and so more often than not, I lie. I said, yeah, it's a good show, you know, but that's not what I think, you know, um, but that's just, you know, so what? I'm sure, I'm sure half the painters that we admire in life, you know, felt the same way about finishing, you know, I'm sure Leonardo da Vinci sort of grimaced when he looked at the Mona Lisa, you know, it's like, oh God, I should have done that, you know. It's just the way life is. It's, it's the nature of the beast. I, I have it on good authority that Van Gogh was not a particularly happy person. I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if that's gotten around. You studied science very early on before this whole music thing happened, and it's sort of I don't know. You know, g- given some of the things that we've talked about, and some of the things I, I, I know about you, it almost seems like that could have been a good fit from the standpoint of science has fairly well-defined rules in, in ways that maybe music doesn't necessarily. Well, yeah, but, but I would have broken them all. And one of the, number one, as a, as a young man, um, I had an intuitive understanding of cell membranes and the molecular, molecular structures and activities of cell membranes. I wasn't interested in anything larger than a paramecium, you know? And so I, you know, very quickly when I was in, just went into high school, I was put into a college level course with a private tutor by the school, you know, a a lady who used to teach at the university there, you know, 
you know, and my, you know, basically in the end, they said, just don't bother coming to biology class anymore. You know, if you show up once in a while, that'll be okay. You know, um, because, you know, I I would skim through the text of the lessons and go, yeah, all right. So it's all obvious to me, you know. Um, And so I was pretty much destined to continue on that way. That that was going to be my career. Um, my brother was a, was a chemical engineer who's basically made a fortune troubleshooting chemical processing plants in China. Um, my sister was a very large, very high up in the U.S. Geology Department of water table research and hydrology and all that sort of stuff. So my my family was kind of scientific and. Um, so I was, I was muttering, you know, going, you know, motoring through, through my education. And, you know, they, there was these series of experiments and, um, that they always do. And, um, there's one experiment, classic experiment. Everybody does it where you breathe, you know, it's supposed to show how genetics is behind evolution and they, they have you breed fruit flies, you know, and I said, oh, I said to the teacher, the tutor, you know, oh, I should do that, you know, because everybody else is doing it. And she said, no, no, don't, you don't need to do that. Don't do that. And I said, no, no, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, I'll do it, you know. So I did it, and I, and I came to her, and I said, you know, genetics cannot be behind evolution. Genetics maintains the status quo. You cannot have mutations within the genetic code that will lead to evolution. And she said, yes, we all know that, but just just say the word. Say you believe it, because if you don't, you'll never get a job. You'll never get a good job worthy of your abilities, you know. So she just said basically lie, okay? You know, I, I know it doesn't sound right, David, but just just lie, you know. And I became very disillusioned, and I dropped the whole thing um, within about a week and a half. It was I, I, I dropped it all. You know, I abandoned the entire rest of my education, which was supposed to be, you know, pumping down that road, and I gave it all up. You know, and so, so yeah, I had a very. Uh, you have no idea how easy the whole. How easy molecular membranes, you know, were to me. I just like it was so obvious what's going on, and and this thing and that thing, and on and on and on. So music wasn't dogmatic in the same way that you felt the scientific community was. Uh, well, I, no, I had no problem with dogma. I had a problem with lying about the dogma. You know, accepting dogma is a little sheep for the sake of my career you know i thought well i don't want a career then if if the if if the career is going to be dependent on whenever somebody comes along and says lie about that you know that i'm going to lie about it you know so no i had no interest in music i um i i remember very clearly and i've said this a couple times that i remember very clearly listening hearing Sounds of Silence by Gar- Simon and Garfunkel. You know the song. And I, 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 you know, I remember saying to somebody, 
it's such this this rock music is so loud and disconcerting that I can't understand the words. You know, I was you know I I had no musical thing at all. You know, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass was kind of oh I like these guys. This is good. You know, do 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 you know sort of thing. You know, um, but but my buddy, you know, he he was he he. He was sort of an artistic sort of person, and we were good buddies, and he had a sound-on-sound tape recorder, and we would do experiments, you know, we would do things, and, you know, he was into uh, into Uncle Meat and um, and whatever, and he turned me on to Uncle Meat. So I went from Herb Albert to Uncle Meat, you know, I thought, yeah, this is good. You know, I like this, you know, and we were, you know, he's the guy that I made the movie with the day the earth met the rocket from the tombs, which is this 20 minute stop action film about the invasion of earth by little prune people, you know, and it took us forever to do it frame by frame. Uh, You know, and I, I saw this other album by Frank Zappa called Hot Rats and and I, I, bought, you know, I just bought that because I like Frank Zappa, you know, and um, and it had this song Willie the Pimp on it with the singer, you know, Captain Beefheart. And I thought, this is good. So this, I like this singer. This is a good, you know, I want to hear more from this guy. So I went out and bought Trout Mask Replica and Mirror Man and whatever else I could find, you know. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, that's the sort of music I was listening to. You know, nobody had ever said that you're not supposed to like this music, you know, or this is weird music. It was just, it was the same category as Herb Alpin, the Tijuana Brass. It was just a little bit different. That's all. You know, that's how I looked at it, you know. And so, so I dropped out of college and I came back and I was able to get a job doing art layout on a, on a, on a weekly entertainment magazine in Cleveland called The Scene. You know, and so I was doing that, and then I was, you know, you know, I was laying out the paper with it on wax tables with exacto knives, cutting out, you know, and I would start correcting the grammar, you know, and I would have to do this by cutting out little pieces, little apostrophes, and moving them over a half a centimeter, and on this, on and on. So they said, "Why don't you be the copy editor? We'll all save ourselves time." So I became the copy editor. So I began rewriting all this copy, which was bad copy. And they said, well, look, why don't you just go out and re- do the reviews? You know, we'll all save ourselves a lot of time. And so, you know, I started reviewing music, you know, but being the way I, I didn't know anything about it. But if they, they gave me something to review, I would study it, you know, and I would, I would ask people and I'd go down to the record shops and I'd study that study the album the best I could and put it in a context and so I became interested in music so I did that for a while and then I you know as I've said before many times I I got to the point where I thought I said to myself if I'm so smart I should do this music stuff myself so I started doing it now I had nothing to do with having some you know ambition to do music I was the last person in the world to do music and have your feelings about the sound of silence changed oh yeah <laughs> i've heard far more rocket things in my life i just got through telling you that you know my favorite thing to do all day long is listen to funhouse over and over again you know screaming along with it you know so 
Yeah, I'm used to I'm used to a little bit more hardcore these days. 